0: We are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Sermon on the Mount. We've described it as the King's Manifesto, a a declaration, King putting forth his statement of expectations, uh, declaring his wisdom to us, calling us to obey him and to know his kingdom and to be his subjects and to reflect him. And so, as such... Sermon on the Mount is is filled with commands. It is the king speaking, and so there are a lot of imperatives here. That's where we see commands. We look for imperative verbs, verbs that are, are saying, do this, this is what you are called to do, or do not do this. Things like, let your light shine before others. If your right eye causes you to sin, uh, gouge it out, throw it away. Uh, give to the one who begs from you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on heaven. All of these imperative verbs that are commands. Do not be anxious about your life. Ask and it will be given you. Enter by the narrow gate. All of these are the king saying, this is, this is my kingdom, This is what I am calling you to. This is what I'm urging you to. There are about four dozen imperatives in the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly enough, that throughout this portion of Scripture called the Beatitudes, there's just one. It's just at the very end. In fact, some would argue that it's sort of an extension, but not an actual Beatitude. It's that last statement in verse 12 to rejoice and be glad. That's the imperative, the command. But the rest, what leads up to this, um, this section of the Beatitudes is descriptions, is, is I would say to you, even promises. Um, we looked at the first one last week in verse 3, the idea of, of, of a Beatitude. It's a Latin word it's from which we get the idea of state of happiness or state of blessedness. So while these Beatitudes contain instruction, they certainly urge us in a direction. There's not actual imperatives that are saying, do this. What there are instead are promises that as you are doing this, as I am empowering you, as I am showing you grace to do these things, here's what I promise to give to you. Here's what I supply to those who are in my kingdom. And so the Beatitudes are saying there is this state of blessedness, favor by God, approval by God, if you will. That's the idea of blessed, but it also, as a as a consequence of that, results in a state of fullness of life or even happiness is is not a, a wrong word to use there in terms of the description of blessed. It is being both approved by God and it is being happy as a result of that. It's having an internal sense of fullness of life as a result. And So as a subject of Jesus walking in the way he has shown us, empowered to walk that way, we are able to experience that blessedness. Verse three that we saw last week, just to review, says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God saying from the beginning, Jesus saying that there is a place in heaven for all who are poor in spirit, not speaking of some kind of works with which we bring, but actually quite the contrary, it is coming to Jesus Empty handed. It is coming without claim. It is coming without resume. It is coming without any sense of of assertiveness or arrogance that somehow I deserve this. It is coming to him empty handed, recognizing my sin and asking Jesus to save me. That's really the, the epitome of poor in spirit. It is this deep seated humility that recognizes by God's grace that I am lost and in need of him. Bring to Jesus your. Failed efforts to find peace and joy. Bring to Jesus all of your flirtation with the world in order to try to find happiness. Bring all of this to him. Admit that it has failed and that you need his grace, that you can only have his kingdom by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done by his death and resurrection. This morning, we're gonna take the next four Beatitudes, verses four through seven. So let's just read them. Matthew five, verses four through seven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Four promises, four Beautiful promises from our king to his subjects, saying to us who live in his kingdom, this is is what I have for you, this is blessing, this is fullness of life that I have for you as you walk in my kingdom. And I would summarize those four this way, there is comfort for the morning, there is inheritance for the meek, there is satisfaction for the hungry and for the thirsty, and there is perfect mercy for imperfectly merciful sinners." Start with the first one, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I mentioned to you last week, there's in many of these, there's an Old Testament link. Uh, Jesus is is in some respect echoing back to something in the Old Testament and reminding them of that. Certainly, Matthew is aware of that as a Jew who is writing to Jews. There's echoes here of of the promises of the Old Testament, and Jesus is now bringing the fulfillment of that. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so it is now Jesus saying these things that were foretold, that were anticipated, now are coming to fruition in me. And so there's an Old Testament link then that often helps us understand what this beatitude means we know that Jesus begins his public ministry by quoting from the Old Testament. If you remember in Luke chapter 4, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth and he is called to speak and he stands and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah that he has given and and unrolls it to what we would describe as chapter 61, the Chapter and verse is all inserted later on to help for clarity, but he rolls to that, unscrolls to that place then where in Isaiah 61, he begins and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I, I want to read on in Isaiah 61. I want to read Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. Jesus does not quote all of this in Nazareth when he's speaking in the synagogue, but this is all in the background here of Matthew 5. Isaiah's prophecy is helping us to see what Jesus is speaking about when he describes these mourners. Blessed are those who mourn and how the Messiah's kingdom becomes the the answer for them. This beatitude is not specifically about mourning mourning. As in, we, we might ordinarily think of mourning the passing of someone, mourning some grievous terrible accident, some terrible tragedy of some kind. There, there are multiple scriptures that speak to Jesus being the comfort of his people, of God being near to the brokenhearted. So, so that's certainly throughout scripture, the idea that God is compassionate to those who are mourning. He cares for his people. Uh, he calls on us to weep with those who weep. But what's going on here is related back to Isaiah's prophecy is that there is is a hope for those who are grieving sin. Isaiah is writing to a people who are caught in the judgment of God because of the nation's rebellion. They they have strayed from God. And as a consequence of that, there are factions. There is warring. There is um, all sorts of struggle and pain because they have turned from God and they have turned to idols. And and that's why Isaiah is speaking, warning to them that they are suffering because of their sin. But the mourners, those who are grieving in Isaiah's day, are those who, who see God's work and who are grieving over sin. They are seeing the wreckage of sin all around them. They are seeing the the cost that comes from the depravity of man, from their own wickedness, much as Isaiah sees his own sin in Isaiah chapter 6 when he first gets this glimpse of God's holiness. And they are seeing how this hatred is destroying the nation. And so they they are pleading for pardon and for rescue. They are calling out to God out of their grief to save and to rescue them. And hope is to be found. Isaiah is saying to them, hope is to be found in the coming of the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant will come, and he will bring good news. He will come, and he will bring this sacrifice that will save. Salvation is coming, and so Jesus is coming to comfort those who mourn. Jesus is the comfort for we who mourn our own awful sinfulness. Jesus is the comfort for when we grieve over a world where evil and injustice seem to run unchecked. Jesus And the gospel of peace is what gives us hope in a world where God is mocked and lives are ruined by sin. One one glimpse of God in His holiness, of seeing God in His sinless perfection, should cause us to groan at the words that we speak. The evil that comes out of our mouth. The thoughts that reside in our minds. The actions that we do against others. One, one glimpse of God's holiness should cause us to grieve over our own sin and the sin of others and what it does and the sin of the world around us. That's why the, the comfort here, the good news is that the servant is coming. The servant is coming and he is bringing forgiveness and hope because we are poor in spirit coming to to Jesus empty-handed and facing our own rebellion, we come to the king with nothing. It is only right that we should grieve our own sin, that we should not treat it lightly. The king is coming. And because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we not only have the promise of forgiveness, but we also have the fullness of this comfort, this is another one of those already, not yet. We have that forgiveness that we experience now, but we also know that because the King has come, there is a day coming when sin and death will be swallowed up and every tear will be wiped away. And so when he says, blessed are those who mourn, as we mourn over sin and we see its wreckage and we see it in our homes and we see it in our lives and in those around us, we are also comforted by the knowledge that because of what Jesus has done, this is not all there is. It's not just this endless cycle of sin. But there is coming a day when the king reigns and sin is defeated and death is swallowed up and sin is banished forevermore. For us as believers today, we should not take evil lightly. We should not take our own sin lightly. It should not just be a passing thought of, oh, did that again, or "Ah, that's just who I am. We shouldn't be casual about our sin. We shouldn't laugh at the world's sin. We shouldn't even take the attitude that says, who cares? I I know that I'm going to heaven anyway. Blessed are those who mourn. The, The poor in spirit, humility should cause us to see sin the way our creator does, the way our savior who died for us Does And we should grieve and mourn over that and yet be comforted that he has done all that is needed to defeat sin and to give us hope and forgiveness. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Promise of inheritance for the meek. One of the resounding themes through the Sermon on the Mount we talked about last week is God's kingdom is not man's kingdom. When you, you think kingdom, and certainly they, they thought it much better in the first century than we did. They understood dictatorship. They understood rule. They understood the idea of a sovereign whose will was imposed on the nation. And so they understood the concept of a kingdom. And one of the things that Sermon on the Mount is making clear is that this kingdom is not like any kingdom with which you are familiar. This is, this is the kingdom of God. And this is different, and this is led by a a different ruler. And so to follow Christ is to live under his reign, and therefore the urging is not to be captivated by the fleeting stuff of earthly kingdoms, the fleeting treasures of earthly kingdoms. The world believes that those who get ahead, those who, who make progress, who who acquire great wealth, who, who, who do successful things. Those people who, in fact, we could sort of describe using the language here in Matthew 5 as those who seem to inherit the earth. They seem to own so much and possess so much. The attitude of the world is you must, to do that, you must be strong. You must be ambitious. You must be aggressive. You probably need to be cunning, even lying if need be. You need to do what it takes to, to crush other people. These are, these are folks who stand their ground. They, they beat others to the punch. They are aggressive. They are assertive. And that's, that's the world sort of models that kind of mentality that, that that's, that's who we want to be, right? We want to be those kind of people who take no prisoners. That is completely the opposite of the description of meek, this assertive, aggressive self-confidence. This is why we call them of euphemistically, sharks, you know, the shark tank, because that's the attitude. They, they'll eat you up if need be, because that's what they do in order to gain. And, and yet, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The essence of meekness is gentleness towards others. In fact, it's the very word that in the fruit of the Spirit, when it says gentleness as one of the things that the, the Spirit produces, this is the same word as meek in Matthew chapter 5, as they're used in Galatians chapter 5. Jesus uses this in the familiar verse in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So when you see meek, think gentle. That's one of the, the words that's used to describe it. It's not weakness. One who is meek may be strong, just as Jesus was clearly strong, but his, his strength was, was not used to oppress. His strength was not used to crush other people. His strength was not used to just get his way or throw his weight around. His strength was very much disciplined under the will of his father. That's meekness. It is strength that is, that is reigned in under c- the control of the Holy Spirit. The meek are gentle toward others. They're gentle toward others. And the, the, the second aspect of that, that language is that they are also humble before God. And, and we get that from another Old Testament link that helps us understand this. And this is in Psalm 37. Seems to be the source of where this comes from. Psalm 37. And David in Psalm 37 is contrasting the wicked and the meek. Listen to Psalm 37 verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, I've taken just those two verses so you'd see that the meek inheriting the land, this is where the the language comes from. But throughout that psalm, what Jesus is doing is making a contrast. The wicked. They have their swords drawn. They are plotting evil. They are ready to commit violence, to do whatever it is to get their way. But he also describes the meek in the verses leading up to this, verse 7 Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There's a description in those verses of what it means to be meek. It is to be humble before God. It is in the midst of life's circumstances that seem so out of control to humbly wait on God and to say, I want your will to be done. I want to wait on you. I want to bow before you, even in the face of evil. They are still, it says, They are patiently waiting on God to act. Instead of lashing out, it says they refrain from anger. There's the call in verse 8. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. That that only leads to evil. Rest in in the strength of your God be still before him, wait patiently on him. It's not that they're cowardly, they're not weak, they are very much under control, but it is the restraint and control of God's spirit, and they are trusting him to be at work in these circumstances. It's not a it's not a let go and let God, as in we just be passive and don't do anything. There's, there's things we are clearly called to do, but it's a, it's a call to not rush ahead and try to do it in our own strength, in our own anger, in our own retribution. It's rather to, to rest and wait on him as he leads us. This word for meek comes up as Jesus' um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he quotes there, uh, Matthew does, Zechariah, and Zechariah's prophecy when he says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, meek, gentle, if you will, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Same Greek word here again. Jesus, in his great strength, omnipotent God, now in flesh, the God-man, humbles himself and is now moving toward the cross to do the will of his father. Jesus, in all of his strength, is humbly coming in a scene that is just so otherworldly. These people are, are hailing a king. They want a ruler. They want one who is powerful, whose mission is to destroy the Romans and, and, and give them victory. And, and, and and they are shouting Hosanna because they, they want something from him. And, and, and the scene is just such a paradox of him riding in on this donkey. And yet they don't even get the half of it. Not only has he not come in this incarnation in order to defeat the, the Romans, he has come to sacrifice his own life. He has come as a king to lay down himself and to die in the place of his people, to do the will of his father. The promise here says that the meek, the, the gentle, those who are gentle to others, humble before God, shall inherit the earth. It's a promise that, that really has eternity in view. A lot of these verbs are passive. Some are, 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 are um, future tense. This is one of them. It, it's looking forward to something. It's saying this is, this is coming. This has eternity in view. First century believers... Just like believers today, they probably more so, or we could think of believers in, in other parts of the world who are suffering, would hardly be the kind of people who we would describe as rulers of the earth, as, as inheritors of the earth, as those who, who just have it all. What this is saying is one day Jesus will reign and we will reign with him. We shall, we shall be with him and in his, in his rule over his kingdom, we shall be alongside him. But now, during our, our short stay on earth, we are called to meekness, to follow Jesus, to, to not determine that we are going to overpower people with our agenda. We're not going to outshout them and be louder than them or nastier than them or go on social media and berate them. We are going to be like Christ. And we are going to hold out to them the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ as people who are gentle and humble. Yes, we are to stand for truth, do what is right, but we should do so with humility and gentleness, knowing that it is our king who is strong. He will be victorious. The fact that we will inherit the earth reminds us again of what Jesus will say and what Paul will say and what John will say, and that is Jesus is coming again and he will rule. He he will manifest his kingdom for all to see, and we who trust in him will, will participate in that with him. Here now, we're called to meekness. The reward for that is eternal. The the people on earth who seem to rule, who seem to own the earth now will be gone, much as David said in Psalm 37. And the king will reign. We will inherit that place in his kingdom. Let me just finish with this verse. I'm going to read some applications. This is Pastor Commentator Kent Hughes from a number of years ago. He wrote this. If you are mean in your treatment of others, if there is an absence of gentleness in your treatment of others, take heed. If you make sure you always get yours first, if numero uno is the subtle driving force in your life, if you care little about how your actions affect others, beware. If you are known as someone never to cross, if you always get your pound of flesh, be on your guard. If rage fills your soul so that, your, that life is a series of explosions occasioned by the fools in your life, watch out. By God's grace and with the help of God's spirit, we are called to be gentle with others. Our emotions are to be submitted to our king so that he is reigning and ruling over our hearts. And his spirit is working through us and restraining those impulses to want revenge, the temptation to want to punch back, to not not want to give and serve, but rather to be self-centered. Those feelings can be strong. And the call of Jesus here in being meek is to restrain them under the power of His spirit. Verse six: "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We've seen comfort for mourning, inheritance for the meek. Third promise is satisfaction for the hungry and thirsty. I've already made the point from verse 3 that we come to Jesus empty-handed. We we don't bring anything with which to win him over, and yet he does speak of bringing something here, and that is hunger. We come expressing the the, the desire, the thirst. We come to him with with a hunger and a thirst for what it says here is righteousness. But I I want you to think on hunger and thirst for a moment because that that speaks of desire. That, That speaks of longing. It's not saying... We blessed are those who determine to do righteousness. Blessed are those who do righteous things. We need grace and, and we need help. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is come to him starving for him to work righteousness in and through us, come to him with that desire that says, I need you to work in me to change my thinking and change my life so that it might conform to what is right before God. It is speaking about a desire and a longing of our hearts. There's, there's two ways in which to, to think about righteousness theologically. There's, there's sort of the, the legal term that we see throughout Romans, where, where Paul is making it very clear that at salvation... You who have trusted in Jesus Christ are declared righteous. It's a a legal declaration where Jesus, having died on the cross, his perfect righteousness is now applied to us. Our our sin and guilt are replaced now by the righteousness of Christ. And so legally, we now stand before God in robes of righteousness, having something we do not deserve, we did not earn, but given to us by grace. So that's the legal standing part. But what Matthew has in mind, and, and we'll see it, throughout this sermon, and, and certainly it's throughout his gospel, is righteousness as a way of living for those who have already been declared righteous. That, that, that we now live we, positionally in, in the, what we are, that we reflect what we are, that we show that legal standing by virtue of our thoughts and our words and our actions. It's about right living as defined by God. Leon Morris put it with a question. He says, how could anyone have a strong desire for a right standing before God, without at the same time strongly wanting to do the right. The, the emphasis, to, to Mars's point, is on the strongly wanting. That's what hunger and thirst speak for. It is, I, I am not content still living like I did before Christ. I am not content still arguing, still lying, still stealing, still whatever like I did before Christ. I want righteousness. I want, I desire that my life, would reflect the holiness of the God in whom I believe. We are not perfect. We we don't do what is right all the time, we know that. But the question comes down to desire. The the, the companion to to grieving our own sin is desiring righteousness. If we we genuinely are grieving our sin, if we are seeing it for the awfulness that it is and seeing it as God sees it, then the, the next desire should be not to just stop at grief But to long for righteousness, to long that God would change how we think and how we act. And he puts it in terms of hunger and thirst, a deep conviction that I must have this. I I am sure that for us, this language just doesn't nearly get the impact that it did in the first century. We can go home, and I suspect most of us can find full pantries and full refrigerators, at least half full if you haven't been to the grocery store this week but we can go home and and there's there's food there i can get in the car and i can go a block and i can get all kinds of treats at 7-eleven may not be healthy but there's just a store full of stuff there and and so when we see hunger and thirst when's the last time you genuinely can say i was just hungering not hangry i know I mean really hungering and thirsting and desperate in a situation where I didn't know where the supply would come from. First century people got this. They, they, they understood what it was like to be in a place where there was no stream, no well. There, there wasn't an immediate supply of water nearby. There, there may not be food available if the harvest had not gone well. They understood this. And, and, and in our world, there's so little to substitute here that, that actually helps us get the, the idea of, that Jesus is communicating. It's the idea of wanting something so much that I know to be without it, will be painful, if not deadly. If I don't have this, I realize it's not just because I I just really want this and it's going to make me feel bad if I don't get it. No, this is if I don't get this, I die. I I can't go on. Try thinking of it this way then. What, What was the last thing that you wanted so badly that you got angry because you couldn't get it? Obviously taking the flip side here now. What what was that thing that you just, you were determined? I want this thing. And you were frustrated. Maybe it was a thing. Maybe it was a relationship. Something somebody was holding out on you about. Maybe, maybe your frustration was multiplied because people around you didn't seem to appreciate just how much you thought you deserved whatever this is. And it wasn't being immediately fulfilled. Listen, had Jesus said, blessed are the Are those who hunger and thirst for happiness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for peace? We'd be down with that. Yeah, yes, I I can hunger and thirst for happiness or peace. But The call here is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to feel like I am starving because I, I want to live rightly before God in a way that reflects what he has done. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the means, this means, speaking of this verse, this means of necessity, a desire to be free from the power of sin. Having realized what it means to be poor in spirit and mourn because of sin within, we naturally come to the stage of longing to be free from the power of sin. That's the heart of this, is being so grieved with my sin that I am, I am starving for Jesus to, to help me put this to death. To, to, to help me in this area, to, to fill me with righteousness. We, we as believers understand what it is to be under the dominion and power of sin. You, you were before Christ. You were a slave to sin. And so you now know what it's like to be set free from that and be able to, to do righteousness. You are by God's grace and the Spirit's enablement, you are able to be righteous because Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. Now it's desiring that in our living, in our day-to-day living, that we reflect him. Craving that our lives be marked by holiness, reflecting his patience, his gentleness, his self-sacrifice, his love of others. Craving, if you will, unhindered fellowship with Jesus because it's, it's not being interfered with by our lack of righteousness. You know what I mean on this. When, when the times when, when we are Struggling in sin, when we are caving into sin and to temptation, are also times when we generally don't feel like we are walking in sweet fellowship with Jesus. We feel like there's there's just miles between us, and 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 so the the craving here is for that kind of communion with Christ. That that the the, the Lord is revealing my sin and convicting me, but also calling me to to see what what righteousness looks like. So, so this is not just saying, Lord, help me be more righteous. This is about, Lord, grow this desire in me. This is about cultivating a sense of dependence as a believer that says long stretches of prayerlessness or long stretches of not opening God's word and hearing from the are not just ah, sort of rough patches in the schedule. They should leave me hungry and thirsting. They should remind me that I am going to starve if I continue in this way, that I need him, that I need to hear from him. There's a price to pay for starving my soul of communion with the Lord. David reflects on this, Psalm 139, verse 23, "'Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts,' See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Show me what I need to see, even the stuff that I'm not even being very aware of at the moment. Help me to see it. Help me to see when my attitude stinks, when my my words to others expose that to me and lead me in the way everlasting. Show Mm -hmm. me how I ought to walk. And the promise, the promise of the beatitude. I spent all that, that on the front end, but the promise is really the best part. And that is, he he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is is God saying, I am eager to meet this desire of yours. I am eager for you to come to me hungering and thirsting, because I, I want to help you in this. I want to grow you in holiness. I want to empower you to put sin to death. I want to show you the path of life and help you to walk in it. We don't do righteousness on our own, in our own strength. But God is not only able to grow, to develop, to nurture righteousness in us, he is is eager to do so and to do it to the point that we are satisfied, that we are sensing his grace at work in us. Our king wants his subjects to come to him continuously hungry to see our sin and to see the path of life and to have the strength to walk in it. Verse seven, last one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This next promise I've, I've put under the heading of perfect mercy for imperfectly merciful sinners. The essence of the, the Greek word for merciful is compassionate, um, sorrow for others, pity, Empathy, but not just the feeling. It's then action. So merciful not only is the idea of having compassion, but it is now concern for their plight that acts on that, that expresses that, that does something then that is merciful, that is compassionate to to help them. Grace is a a response to sin that pardons. Grace brings forgiveness. Mercy sees people in in their misery, In their distress, in their helplessness, it feels for them. It it doesn't simply, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It doesn't simply pass by on the other side, but it it, it begins to comprehend what that feels like, and it reaches out with some form of relief. It is pity in action. Verse 7, it is easily misunderstood if what we see here is, oh, this is a, I do this, then God does that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. So as if our getting mercy from God depends on our showing mercy to others first. We know the reality of this. If, if God were to wait until we were merciful toward others, before he would show us any mercy, we would all still be waiting. We would never get mercy. Um, the, the, The reality of the gospel message is God showed mercy to us while we were his enemies, while we were yet sinners, while we were hostile to him. God showed pity on us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for us. And so God is the initiator throughout scripture. God initiates mercy. In fact, Luke 6.36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. The only reason... At the start of this verse that we can even show mercy is is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ because God then has already shown you mercy. God has abundantly rescued you, had compassion on you and saved you. And so he has already shown mercy and saved you out of your rebellion. But there is a promise here. Blessed are those who are merciful for they shall receive mercy. There is a a promise and, and I think it becomes Clearer as we think about our own hearts, particularly in light of what we've already been saying in terms of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We received mercy at salvation, but we also know as believers that we are continuously in need of mercy. We didn't get it at salvation and say to God, I'm okay now, I don't need any more mercy, I'm I'm fine. We, We need mercy regularly from God because we still struggle in the flesh. We still struggle with temptation. We still sin. We still slip into old ways of, of nursing grudges towards others. We still are uncompassionate toward others. We still, we still go through times when we question how worthy someone is of our compassion. Or we do like the, the story of the Good Samaritan and we see a situation that needs pity and, and we just really can't be bothered with it and so we, we pass on the other side. And so we need mercy daily. The truth is, as, as D.A. Carson has said, we are at what he describes as a midpoint. We received forgiveness through Christ at salvation, yet we still need forgiveness. And so when we sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, we, we know our hearts well enough to know the wretchedness that still resides in them. And yet, the king does not, mercif- does, does not in, in his justice, just expel us from his kingdom have every right to, you unmerciful servants. Instead, we continue to, to receive mercy. So think about your week just gone by. When you caught a glimpse or heard of someone nearby in misery, what'd you do? How did you respond to that? Did you, did you look the other way, pass at a distance, or, or reach out in compassion and serve? Did you withhold mercy this week from someone because you really wanted them to still feel the sense of anger in your heart? Maybe maybe they were already showing confession and repentance and you just weren't ready to show them any kind of mercy and, and just wanted them to swim in it for a while. Do you still keep a record of wrongs? Do you still assume the worst of others? That's the opposite of merciful. When we go into a situation and say, I know exactly what she's going to do. I know exactly what he's going to say because he's done it before and, and this is going to get replayed again and it's going to be wrong and, and all that. We are, we are lacking any degree of compassion at that point or hoping for what is best. Hosea 6.6, 6, God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Don't, don't just give me Rituals. Give me a heart that actually has compassion for others, that actually grieves for those who are lost, that looks at their situation and, and sees their sin and maybe is even affected by their sin and hurt by their sin, and yet is also able to pause and understand that they are lost, enslaved, in darkness, and desperately in need of the mercy of Jesus Christ, Matthew gives us at least two occasions when Jesus recited that line from Hosea, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. There are other times he, he chides the religious leaders. You, you remember the encounters with the Pharisees that, that you've, you've got all this law stuff, you've got all this, this duty stuff, but you, you lack mercy. You don't seem to have compassion on the very sheep that you've been called to shepherd. You lack mercy. Jesus repeatedly models this for us throughout, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. When, when the blind beggars are calling out, have mercy on us, and Jesus heals them. When the Matthew 15, the, the, the cry of the mother whose demon-possessed daughter is in distress, and she says, have mercy on me, son of David. One of the, the, the distinctive marks of we who are citizens of God's kingdom is our mercy. In a world where sin and hurt abound, it is uniquely Christ-like to have compassion on people and actively show pity and reach out to those in need. There are times the merciful thing is to speak truth and and, and even to, to confront in some way, but to do so lovingly and humbly. More often than not, mercy is is being compassionate and coming alongside and getting a sense for their plight and seeing in what ways God would enable me to help. And as we do so, albeit imperfectly, the promise of Matthew 5, 7 is your savior continues to abundantly pour out mercy on you. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That I I would continue to be an object of, of God's mercy knowing my stubbornness, knowing my repeated sins, knowing how difficult I can be, and yet having a compassionate savior who continues to cover my sin by his mercy. It's our king's kingdom. That's the start of this manifesto that we are called to. It is a reminder from beginning to end that this is not who we are naturally, that this is not what we do by by custom, we need God's work. We need to be a people who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are gentle, who are thirsting for righteousness, who are pleading for mercy. We need a, to be a people who are desperate for God to work these things into us and through us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that each of these qualities, if you will, these uh, this. Righteousness, meekness, gentleness, mercy. Uh, that that as we look at your life, as we read the gospels, we we see what these things look like in perfect measure. Thank you for for being the perfect Son of God, who in flesh was subject to hunger and thirst, who was tempted who faced all of the things that, that we would experience in terms of pressures from the world and yet was without sin and yet modeled for us what this looks like. So we are, we are not left without a pattern, but we see it in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that at the heart of this message of your kingdom is your having come as the perfect king to ransom People to to draw them into your kingdom. Not to simply stand and to set out a manifesto and command and say, well, if this is what you need to do, you'll have to obey it and then you can come in the gate. But being the king who who went out amongst the beggars and the lost and the evil and the rebellious and graciously saved us. Father, if there's any listening this morning here online who are not fully trusting in you, not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. I would just again pray that this, this not come across as some set of rules, laws, guidelines, that by following them, all is well. I want to pray that today that you would work in their hearts, that they would see that this is, this is why we would so desperately need the gospel This is why we need a savior in Jesus Christ who would rescue us from our sin and rebellion and who would cause us to be righteous now before the high king of heaven. Lord, we pray that your church here, Grace Bible Church, you would grow us in mercy and compassion. Thank you for the community in which you've placed us, the neighborhoods in which each of us live. There are people around us who desperately need to feel compassion, who would welcome someone who comes along and has a sense for their pain and doesn't simply see it, but, but seeks to come along and serve and to help. Help us as a church to love holiness. Holiness. We are grateful, so grateful, for grace and mercy. Cause us never to lose sight of what that grace enables us for. It enables us to live like Christ, to follow after Christ. Help us to not lose that as the mark or play it down, but to hunger and thirst for it. Lord, help us to be meek in a world that is filled with increasing loud voices, angry voices, a world that is full of division and hostility. Help us to be a people who are gentle toward others, humble before you, who desire your ways, your justice, your mercy. Father, thank you for your word, for speaking these truths through the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. We need your Spirit's help this week to apply these things. We ask it all in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.